The Army is trying to reinvent itself as it prepares for an unexpected new era of great power competition. That includes working with small and non-traditional businesses to help it sharpen its lethal edge. Federal News Network Scott Malcioni spoke with Army Secretary Mark Esper about how the Army is changing. I think we've been in the uh, in a great power competition for a few years now, uh, but it, it was just... Uh, really uh, reflected in last year's national defense strategy where we came out and said, okay, we recognize now that we are in it. It is time to shift our focus toward great power competition against uh, strategic competitors such as Russia and China. And of course, there are other countries listed there. Uh, And we need to ensure we're prepared to fight and win in a high intensity conflict. And so that is where the Army has been the last uh, few years is focused on that. And when it comes to the budget, if you were to look at our budget, you would see uh, a dramatic shift in the uh, in the budget we put forward just to make sure that we were consistent with the national defense strategy. So with regard to everything we do, whether it's how we man, organize, train, equip the force and lead it, we're making big shifts. I like to say that the Army is in a renaissance right now as you make this transition. But our budget reflects all that as well. And most dramatically, it has been in our equipping budget where over the five-year defense plan, we shifted over $30 billion from what I like to say is our legacy equipment, the equipment that uh, uh, that was present when I joined the Army uh, on active duty in 1986, uh, the big five systems like the Abrams tank, the Bradley fighting vehicle, the uh, Apache helicopter. We're now making that leap into the next generation of technology uh, that is based upon uh, capabilities such as uh, uh, high-powered lasers, hypersonic weapons, uh, directed energy artificial intelligence robotics. So it's a major transition for the United States Army, but we believe that's what we need to do if we're going to be prepared to fight and win in the future. So how are you harnessing industry? How are you bringing those partners in, especially when they're not very defense-focused sometimes? No, you are correct. There has been a a shift over the many, many years from uh, technologies that were driven by the defense industrial base to now technologies that we bring in from the commercial sector. And uh, what we try to do is is to harness that. And uh, to do that, we, we made a major change in the Army's structure. It's the biggest change since 1973. And what we did was stand up what's called Army Futures Command. And the purpose of Army's Futures Command was to, first of all, envision the future and how our enemies will fight. And then secondly, envision how we would need to fight to defeat them. And then thirdly, uh, determine the requirements for equipment and, and other things, weapons, to make sure we're prepared to fight and, and, and win that fight. And so an uh, important part of what we've done with the Futures Command is also put it in a, one of America's major technological hubs, a, a city with a great deal of spirit and innovation, uh, ingenuity, and entrepreneurs, and that's Austin, Texas. And also, rather than putting it uh, behind uh, walls with MPs and barbed wire, we are find ourselves embedded in the University of Texas uh, 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 system. There are buildings down there. And we have um, other outlets in the area and, frankly, around the country where we're reaching out to small businesses. We're reaching out to entrepreneurs and innovators. We're reaching out to um, academia to get those best ideas from the commercial sector, from the private sector, so we can harness them and adapt them to our needs on the battlefield. Um, One good example was earlier this year I had the chance to open up the Army's new artificial intelligence uh, task force at Carnegie Mellon University. And And it's centered not just on in Pittsburgh with Carnegie Mellon, but also there are other schools that will be participating with us on that campus. Again, to uh, draw the the best ideas and technologies coming out of a fantastic school like Carnegie Mellon and its expertise in robotics and AI. So that's just one example of how we're 
really trying to, to, to get on the other side of, uh, of, of that curve. So you, you mentioned Futures Command, and I think in July it's going to be a year old. It's still sort of finding its legs and, and getting set up, and, and General Murray is the, the, the person in charge. So what would you say to taxpayers and to soldiers and to Congress you know, about what Futures Command has accomplished so far? Where, where is it taking the Army? How has it gotten it there so far, and, and, and what is left to be done? Yeah, so Futures Command has come a long way. Uh, they're not yet fully operationally capable, but they'll be near ready uh, here soon. Uh, they, they have to, you know, hiring is the difficult part because you want to get the best people. But uh, they're already making a number of uh, uh, major strides and uh, it driven at this point largely by our cross-functional teams. But what I'd say to, uh, to the various audiences you, you mentioned there is this. First of all, we, we finally have a command that is bringing together the entire modernization enterprise to make sure that we do the, the, the most important task is provide our soldiers the equipment they need uh, when they need it. That's, that's task number one. Number two, important to Congress and the taxpayers as well, is to, is to provide that at, a, at an affordable cost. We need to be good stewards of, the, of, of America's hard-earned tax dollars. And so we're doing that at cost. And again, we're already seeing accomplishments by, uh, by General Murray and Futures Command on both fronts, and I'm very excited about the future and his ability to uh, deliver capabilities on time, uh, on, on cost, with the performance uh, parameters and requirements we need. And within this Futures Command and also talking about private industry, uh, intellectual property has been a, a real kind of tension point between the, the two how are you looking forward at intellectual property and licensing? Uh, and, and I know that Bruce Jetty has some ideas on it. So, you know, how open are you to some of the things that he's talked about as well? Sure. Intellectual property is very important. I've, I've worked on this in the past. And uh, late last year, the Army came out with its own intellectual property policy. It was a policy that uh, we worked closely with industry on. And I think we've gotten rave reviews across the board because what we try to do is take a very business-like approach to uh, – to intellectual property. So uh, simple things like deciding which pieces of equipment or technology we we really need the IP for and which we don't. And then if we we think we want the IP, then how do we work through a a market-based solution to get it, Uh, whether it's uh, buying it up front or whether it's a royalties-based solution that would endure over time. Uh, And then third, bake that into the agreement uh, before we ever uh, begin production, whatever the case may be. So we've gotten a lot of good reviews from industry. Uh, OSD, uh, Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, sees it as a a very strong benchmark for what they may adopt as well. So I'm, I'm very pleased with what he and his team did. And I think we've set a good standard for uh, for where all of DOD should go. How are you working that into working with the smaller businesses and the more innovative businesses? Because you don't know, like Lockheed Martin, you know, will probably be around in 20 years. You don't know that, uh, you know, some small company that's still in a garage is going to be around in, in 20 years. So how do you how do you kind of play with that intellectual property when it comes to sustainment and, you know, needing a piece of an equipment? farther down the road well that's that is the challenge if i could give you a hard and fast rule then that would that would mean that we really don't have a flexible <laughs> sure. and adaptable ip policy but the key is to be flexible and adaptable to uh to anybody whether it's like you said the the, the small innovator in a working out of his or her garage or it's a it's a ginormous company uh, we need to be flexible in in our approach uh the, the bigger challenge with the small uh player is finding them and reaching out to them and and if their technology looks promising, providing them that seed money, if you will, to fully develop it. So we've tried to do, for example, our, our own version of Shark Tank 
in the Army whereby uh, small firms will come in and they'll pitch, and we're able to decide fairly quickly whether we want to help them along with some money or, uh, or, or otherwise by which we could, again, uh, help them grow as a company, help them develop their technology, and then bring it into what we need for the Army to fight and win. Uh, I want to move to a little bit more of some personnel issues. One of the things that you've talked about is hiring civilians better, and I've, I've heard you talk about this a couple of times. Um, how, do you have any ideas on how to change the process on hiring civilians better and, and more effectively within the Army, and, and what might you do to implement that in the future? Yeah, there's there's two ways in which I talk about this. Mostly uh, involves uh, the hiring of, uh, of, of our spouses, Mm-hmm. and uh, filling up our child care centers, and uh, it, the, the two issues there are related. Uh, the bottom line is we our process currently takes too long, in many cases well over 100 days, to hire somebody. And, uh, look, your, your good talent's not going wait to wait around for three or four months to get hired. And in many cases, uh, you know, we have spouses who need to work, and in many other cases they simply want to work. In all cases, they tend to be um, uh, overqualified and underemployed. So we need, uh, across the government now, a, a uh, hiring system that's much more adaptable, flexible, uh, transparent, and, and quick in terms of making these decisions. And uh, we're trying to work as best we can within the authorities we have to do that. We've had some success. Uh, I've pushed hard for direct hiring authority. We've seen our numbers come down, but we need to do much, much better on this front. Now, on the military side, you, you do have some of these uh authorities to do that. And, and there was recent changes in DAPMA and the NDAA last year, which uh, gave you high, better direct authority, easier ways to promote. Uh, have you been able to to really use those much yet? And, and if so, how are they, they working out? Yes, we've used, we've looked at all the authorities and we've begun putting them in, in to work. In some cases, we've had some early success. So we've, we've been able to bring directly into the service, for example, uh, several, several persons who would become officers in our cyber corps uh, and, and we're trying to exercise all the other authorities but it's it all has to be woven into a, a much bigger um, personnel system that we're trying to overhaul and that is what i like to say is an, a, a market-based talent management system that uh, gets away from up and uh, up or out into what i like to call perform or out and uh, we're working hard right now to develop that we've had a lot of good progress in the last several months uh, but the aim, again, is to really optimize our talent by recognizing each person's unique knowledge, skills, and behaviors combined with their preferences to really uh, make sure we meet the Army's requirements in a much more optimal way and in a way that will ensure uh, better satisfaction from the Army's perspective and from the individual's perspective to maximize performance in each and every role. So in order to, to implement that, what's left? Because, I mean, you do have the authorities from Congress at this point. Is there more authority that you need, or is this more up of promulgation type thing? I think we have sufficient authority now. It's just a matter of developing the system, uh, getting the word out, uh, having people use it, and then get over, getting beyond whatever cultural hurdles we have as yeah. well. And that, that'll probably be the, the, the most difficult thing. It will take some time, but I, I have a, a great partner in the, uh, in the uh, next chief of staff, General Jim McConville, who was uh, – formerly the G1, the head of personnel, but also a big believer in talent management systems. So uh, I, th- I think he and I will be able to move out pretty quickly and, and get this uh, underway. Uh, another personnel issue is the housing crisis uh, that's, that's recently come up, uh, obviously very serious to, to all the services. You have made some changes already, and I was, just want to give you a chance to sort of explain some of those so that people out there can know what, what has happened and, and what they, options are open for them. Sure. Well, the, the, the issue, in, in short, in, for those folks who aren't aware, is that we found that um, many of our families were living in homes that 
were substandard because the private sector companies that took over 20 years weren't attending to them. And to be fair, we as a chain of command weren't paying attention, sufficient attention as well. And so uh, this this reached a crescendo a few months ago. I think uh, the Army quickly jumped on it. The chief of staff and I, for example, went out to Fort Meade, walked through several homes, met with several families. Uh, since that time, I've been to various posts around the country, whether it's uh, uh, whether it was uh, Fort Bragg or West Point, or just last week, I walked through a couple homes in Vicenza, Italy, and I've had a chance to talk with the residents. I think we're getting our arms around it. Uh, in the early weeks, we set up a 1-800 hotline for people with problems that uh, they weren't able to have resolved by their landlords, if you will. Uh, we had town halls. Uh, we immediately jumped on work orders. We began hiring up our own quality assurance, quality control people. And at this point, we've uh, moved pretty far in terms of setting up uh, everything from apps on one's phones that gives you greater work order transparency to improving customer service. The hard work really comes here in the in the coming months. Uh, we have established a tenant bill of rights, which is going through final staffing right now. And once we finalize that bill of rights, then we have to do what we have to do is translate those rights into uh, uh, a new agreement, lease agreement between the tenant and the resident that will uh, really help uh, our families a, a good deal. And then between the Army as an enterprise and the uh, and these private companies that run our housing, we need to reset what the incentive fees and, and structures, all that looks like. So uh, much more work to do, but I, I feel we've come a long way. And uh, for the Army, again, culturally, what we need to do is get back into our DNA, the notion that we will inspect barracks and we will visit homes and we will pay much, much closer attention to the living conditions of our families. How are you ensuring that uh, retaliation isn't an issue? That was something that also came up for a lot of soldiers. Yeah, so we had to be, uh, we're very cognizant of that. The retaliation that was mentioned was not retaliation necessarily by a service member, but by the company themselves. And so we've, uh, part of the hotline is to make sure that uh, uh, if people encounter that, they uh, they can report it immediately. Now, we've had our IG out there doing uh uh, an inspection uh, to make sure that we know what's happening. If I get any reports of uh, retaliation, and we've we've had a few, we track them down, we investigate them soon. So we're very uh, uh, diligent on that front to make sure that we're well aware of anybody who who claims that there's some retaliation that just will not be tolerated. How's the contracts with these um, private companies, these private housing companies, going to work? for the future. From what I understand, these were 50-year contracts that the Army and the other services were, were under. Are you considering renegotiating those, or is it more of an issue with the management companies themselves? I think it's more, at this point, the issue with the management companies. The The, the, the real issue has been customer service. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's anything from timeliness of, uh, of a worker showing up to uh, the, the, the qualifications of the worker to perform the work to s- simply how you treat uh, our families. Are you courteous? Um, are you respectful? It's it's the transparency, of the work order process. It's those types of things where we got to focus on, and that's where we put a lot of work. So at this point, what we what we want to do at the at the enterprise level is really uh, restructure the agreements between a garrison and the company that that owns and runs the housing, so that we get the incentives right and we know that we are rewarding the right thing. So clearly, in this case, we need to put more emphasis on, on uh, customer service going forward. Uh, there's some other things, but that's kind of one way we plan on addressing it. Right. So is there any sort of uh, idea or, or thought to actually renegotiate the 50-year contracts? I don't point? think at this point. I mean, if, if you step back, um, 
Army housing uh, today is generally better than what it was in my day uh, since it was privatized. Again, the the mistake was everybody took their eye off the ball when it came to day-to-day maintenance, uh, work orders, things like that. But I think overall, the folks who have been in the Army quite a long time would say that the privatization um, initiative was successful, but we need to stay on top of the the uh, private sector landlords uh, to, to make it work really well and make sure that we're living up to the expectations. And until that model proves a failure, uh, we're going to we're going to continue to make it work. Right. Uh, I want to move on to recruitment. Um, something mm-hmm. that in 2018 wasn't the best year for the Army. You missed some of your goals, and since then, Frank Muth and, and some of the other um, generals in charge of that have changed their sort of strategy to do that. They're visiting 22 new cities. Um, what are you doing uh, as as the secretary to, mm-hmm. to recruit? And then also, you know, how is the Army sort of reaching these Generation Z and these new uh, sort of generation of, of soldiers? Yeah, so, you know, to, to be clear, last year we, we set a very high bar of 80,000, which Congress adjusted down to 76,000. And uh, we ended up at 70,000, which was still, interestingly, the highest level we had had in 10 years. Hmm. And then you couple that with the fact that we had the highest retention ever in about as many years as well. So we, we, in many ways, it was a very good year for the Army on, on the end strength side. But nonetheless, we did miss by a few thousand the, the mark we had set on the wall. So, uh, you know, we, we looked at that. We stepped back and realized we need to make a number of changes. So you're right. We uh, had about two dozen initiatives led by the new head of Recruiting Command, General Muth. It's everything from uh, upgrading our storefronts where we recruit from to changing them. It was uh, hiring hundreds of new recruiters and putting them on the streets it was uh, the major initiative moving to what we call the Focus 22 cities. Those are 22 of America's largest cities, many in areas where, we, where we've often been challenged to recruit from, and really doubling down and going back into the places where America's young men and women are. So I, I've visited Boston and Cleveland and Pittsburgh and L.A. and Atlanta. I've gone all around meeting with governors and mayors and, and school board members to, to kind of open up the doors to kind of spread the Army's message. And there, there are a dozen or so more as well. You know, we're, we uh, we're overhauled our recruiting uh, – I'm sorry, our marketing and, and branding. We should have new commercials coming out. Uh, we're reaching online through social media much more aggressively and, and, and going to that space to find America's youth. So I'm, I'm very excited about the progress made today. we still got a lot more to go. And right now we're on track to meet our goals for, uh, for this year. Do you think that the Army can be – a 21st century employer and provide the quality of life that um, that soldiers really want uh, when you you have a, a volunteer force. Yeah, in fact, I think we can do we, we offer more than what most civilian employers offer. I mean, one of the challenges we have today is that this is the best economy in 50 years right. in terms of employment. So, so young uh, high school graduates, which is 95 percent plus of what we will accept in the army have more options. And so what we have to do is be more competitive out there. And what I like to tell parents and school board members is, is this. If, if, you, uh, if you don't think you're ready for, the, for college, uh, if you don't have the money for college or you're unsure, come uh, visit us and uh, we present several options for you. Uh, we have over 150 career fields. Uh, you can get uh, a multi-thousand dollar bonus for signing up. Uh, we offer a 401k. We offer medical benefits, dental benefits. We offer tuition assistance to the tune of $4,000 plus a year. Uh, we'll teach you a skill. 
uh, which in many cases you can take and uh, we'll give you a, a commercial license to do it. Take it out into the private sector if you only stay for a few years. So I think there are a lot of benefits to serving. And if you if you serve for a few years, what employers also like that will make you stand out amongst your peers is the fact that we've taught you things like discipline and commitment and, uh, and, and duty and showing up on work on time and leadership and management, all those things, those intangibles that employers really look for that make a difference. Army Secretary Mark Esper talking with Federal News Network Scott Mascioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.